again. Welcome to the Hilco Global Smarter Perspective podcast series. I'm your host, Steve Katz. Today, we're speaking with Stephen DeQuilla, Vice President at Hilco Valuation Services and a jewelry industry specialist about the state of the industry one year into the global pandemic and some guidelines that he suggests for lenders to follow in order to more effectively evaluate both prospective jewelry industry borrowers and existing portfolio accounts during this volatile pandemic period. Just a bit of quick background, Hillco Valuation Services is one of the world's largest and most diversified business asset appraisers, field examiners, and valuation advisors. The company has expertise across a wide range of asset classes, including inventory, machinery and equipment, real estate, and enterprise valuation, and has delivered valuations for all industries industries ranging from jewelry to retail, energy, financial services, healthcare, aerospace, and more. All right. With that said, welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Well, Steve, great to be here today. Well, we're really glad to have you on. To get things started today, can you give us a general overview of the health of the industry prior to the pandemic in the 2019 period? And then maybe some thoughts on what you and your team observed over the course of 2020 from a demand, sales, and related impact perspective. Sure, Steve. So if you go back in history, the diamond supply side, now think rough diamonds, is very highly concentrated in a few, few key players. These players control the flow of goods and subsequently the pricing of the inventory. They sell to site holders. Now, site holders are manufacturers, cutters with contractual agreements in place with these mining companies. And the miners dictate pricing as well as terms and how much inventory is being sold to these site holders. So now if you fast forward, Leading up to COVID, there was a general decline in global and consumer demand as it slowed down specifically for this asset class. And that then resulted in generally a bottleneck in the industry, which led to a glut of supply, not just in the polished stones that you would see actually in a retail store location, but also the rough stones themselves. So what happens is the mining companies are faced with a dilemma. What do we do? And what they eventually chose to do is begin to offer site deferrals. So if you, the cutter, Normally, and a site holder normally had an agreement in place where you would produce and purchase goods at the beginning of a particular site. You were then given the opportunity to defer that site to a different time frame, generally around six, six weeks from them. From there, the miners additionally began to offer price concessions on rough stones, which is not something that they've historically ever had to do. So then, all that being said, COVID then hits and demand really begins to drop off. Retail stores, they start to shut down, and that's where a lot of the end consumer demand stems from. Most people are going into a store to buy jewelry. So when the stores are closed in that, call it mid-March to June-ish timeframe, there was a lack of demand for the product, and you see consumers beginning to save more and more and not bend. And there was just a general concern in the industry early part of 2020 regarding just the consumer's attention and, and really not buying diamonds and jewelry at all. Good news is that lenders began to give jewelers some leeway, and therefore there was not really a rush to mark down inventory, the jewelry inventory, and it was favorable for the jewelers that they did not have to take these big types of markdowns. Gold, on the other hand, really had an opportunity to increase in value. It's seen as a safe haven for investors. So if you look at a historical price chart of gold, you'll see that starting with the pandemic and continuing forward, gold prices increased significantly, albeit they've come down a little bit since then. But for the early and middle part of 2020, gold prices experienced a tremendous growth in comparison to historical averages. Okay, perfect. That's that's a great baseline, I think, for us to start with. Um, now, you and I were chatting before the podcast a bit about how consumer spending shifts 
during the pandemic have to some degree actually benefited the industry. Can you shed a little bit of light on that for our listeners? And then also, I'm hoping that you can address how that benefit might have been even greater if industry players hadn't faced some very unique challenges in their ability to adopt a more e-commerce driven model. Sure. So if you think about it, I'm I'm sure the listeners have heard it before, but a K-shaped recovery. From a financial perspective, you have individuals who benefited financially from COVID and you had others that did not. And for those that did benefit, there was a general pent-up demand among these consumers. They had been saving for quite some time. Their savings levels had gone way up. If they owned stock or if they were lucky enough to have a home, they saw appreciation in both of those asset classes. If they continue to uh, have employment, they had a continuous flow of income coming in. And when you have all this additional equity and liquidity lying around and less of an opportunity to spend it in areas such as travel, entertainment, dining, et cetera, it really diverts discretionary spending into different asset classes, including jewelry. So jewelry has benefited more recently from this inflow of activity. On the e-commerce side that you mentioned, We noted a general e-commerce shift, this industry as well as just about everywhere else. COVID really changed the buying behavior of consumers and accelerated the shift that has been going on for a number of years uh, into e-commerce. That has helped offset declines in brick-and-mortar sales activity during that uh, store shutdown and subsequently coming out of that store shutdown. The challenge is the jewelry industry in particular, it's less focused historically on the e-commerce sales platform. Most people go to stores, purchase jewelry type items. Now, there have been a few players out there, big players that have benefited from having a strong e-commerce presence even pre-COVID. And those players did remarkably well during this entire COVID experience. What we found is that for the most part, jewelers are now dedicating more money and more of a focus to the e-commerce platform, but it still represents a pretty small slice of the total revenue for the industry, but it is something that is a focus of these uh, different companies going forward. We're finding that you know habits are changing and COVID is uh, quickening this change, and now there's a greater uh, reliance online for a number of buyers. So what I've seen is, you know, the jewelry companies are focusing on having jewelry being displayed on their website, but the actual customer experience is something that is really important to the user. So what we're looking at is, you know, how does product load on the website? What are the descriptions being uh, assigned to the different products on the website? And most importantly, how the product is being visualized on the website. A 360 visualization feature, for example, really is something that consumers are, are looking forward. And what we're seeing is consumers, even if they're not buying online, they're at the very least, they're educating themselves more online before they walk into an actual physical store location. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, we've seen consumers become much more sophisticated in their online buying. So I'm sure that the ability to display those goods in a compelling way uh, will make a big difference. But obviously, there's a cost associated with that. So, Stephen, I know that when you and your team approach the process of establishing a valuation for a jewelry business, it's really the in-depth diligence that you perform that provides the data and the insights that enable you to establish a highly accurate net orderly liquidation value. So my question is, how valuable are the inputs that you receive from lenders as part of that process? And are there certain operational components of those businesses that a lender should make sure that they're particularly knowledgeable or in the know about? I would say that these inputs are critical, very valuable in the overall valuation process. Our our team here at Hilco, we've 
consistently found that the lenders we work with, they're, they're highly knowledgeable of their borrowers. And then when the lenders do come to us, they're asking very specific pointed questions. And those questions are great because I think in the end of the day, it leads to a better quality report and a better outcome for everyone. But, you know, there are times when you know, a client might be new to the specific space. And really, that's where we come into play. And that's what we're here for. I see ourselves as an educational resource you know, from our collective experience uh, over the years appraising a number of these companies in the industry. And, and we could provide that resource uh, to these clients. Uh, so that, to that point, you know, if your readers have a chance to read this Jewelry Perspective article you know, found on the Hilco Global website, within the article, I laid out 11 different what I would call key considerations. And these are areas that you know, I would suggest to a lender for them to chat with the borrower about and then loop in the appraiser as needed. You know, answers that the lender receives to these different consideration points will really help us form the basis of an appraisal in terms of the general disposition strategy we're using as well as the recoverable value. And what I found is when an appraiser is provided this insight in advance of an actual engagement, we have the ability to better fine-tune our expected recovery guidance to our clients in advance of the actual engagement itself. Okay, well, great. So based on our conversation earlier, I think that I have a list of those here. Yep, I've got them. So let's walk through those. And if you don't mind, I'd like to have you briefly touch on what lenders should be looking out for in regard to each of those 11 items. So here goes. The first two are memo exposure and then turn and aging. Sure. So memo, for, for those of you who, have, who may not have heard this term before, memo is an industry term which would be similar to that of consignment inventory. Now, there are different forms of memo. It could be memo in as well as memo out. Memo in is product that is someone else's that is at your location, while memo out is the opposite of that. So the secured collateral of your borrower may include memo out type product. So within memo out, you have long-term memo out and short-term memo out. Short-term could be inventory that's at an outside grading agency, an artisan who's manufacturing product, an employee sales associate who's taking the goods to different retail locations for trunk shows. You might even have it at a customer, an actual end user. Longer term memo out could include product that a distributor or manufacturer has at a retailer. And it could be for six months, a year, even more. As you'd imagine, memo adds general risk you know, both operating the business as a going concern as, as well as in a liquidation. The risk factors that we see are just simply, you know, access to the inventory. You know, will the customer purchase it in the event of a liquidation? Potential shrink issues associated with that product. Freight costs if you do have to bring the product back uh, in-house. You know, are there UCCs in place with the lender? And so what we do is we look at all these different points in addition to the mix of inventory that might be owned versus out on memo and where the inventory physically is. And we discuss these with the lender and provide them guidance in terms of what we're looking at in terms of suggestions for product eligibility, as well as the impact on recovery rate in an appraisal. Your second question was regarding the, the turn and aging of the product. And regarding turn, it's a bit relative for an industry, and it's specific to from one industry to another. If you think about it, food products, products with expiration dates, products that might be technological sensitive, fashion type goods, those are all products that need to turn very quickly. Jewelry, on the other hand, that has a little bit more leeway. It does not turn nearly as fast as a number of those examples. And the average turn for jewelry is right around a year or so. 
So what we do is when we look at inventory turnover and inventory aging specific to jewelry type items, we really focus in on what is the piece made up of? You know, can you repurpose it? Can you take it from a slow moving piece and redesign it into a new piece that could breathe new life into the product? Or you know, how much of the cost value of the product is linked to the commodity or commodities it is made up of? So you think the diamonds that are in there or, or the precious metal component. With that, we have the opportunity to repurpose the goods or sell the goods separately or even melt the, the gold of our other precious metal content of the piece itself. Okay, very good. Uh, the next two are expenses and trends. So jewelry inventory, it's slow moving, right? So that means generally there's an elongated sale term when it comes to an inventory appraisal disposition strategy. So what we have to consider in addition to the term of the sale is other factors related to expenses, expenses that we would need to incur during a sale itself. And for a jewelry retailer, it could include high price point real estate leases. You have uh, stores that are in uh, very strong markets that command higher price points for their leases. And as well as, you know, store payroll and the related commissions. All these factor into our liquidation expense structures are the biggest contributors to the liquidation expense structure and can really eat away at recovery value. So collectively, these liquidation expenses create a greater burden on the cost value of the product for a jewelry retailer in comparison to a jewelry manufacturer or distributor. For the manufacturer or distributor of jewelry, the good news is you have high price point pieces that are very small in actual physical size. So you could fit a lot of them into a small location. This reduces the overall operating expenses that we would expect to incur during a sale event. So you have lower expenses expressed against a high inventory value, which is which leads to really favorable expense absorption. So the long story short, you know, expenses as a percent of cost, they can really be drastically different when you compare the wholesaler to a jewelry retailer. On the second point, you mentioned trends. You know, trends are important for us to look at specifically when it comes to the fashion component of a jewelry company. And some this applies more so than others when it comes to designers and the popularity of different designers for pieces on hand or product types. If you think about like engagement rings, like the halo engagement ring was a very popular trend for a period of time. Changes in consumer demand for rose gold versus yellow gold. All these different types of trend type items will cycle in and out. And what we want to do is get a good understanding of how the borrower's assortment is mixed toward trendy, fashionable product versus what I would consider more timeless type pieces. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, obviously, because once the, once the trend is gone, what happens to the inventory? So um, interesting. All right. Uh, the next two are seasonality and financing. So from a seasonality perspective, when we're looking at jewelry companies, specifically jewelry retailers, as you would imagine, fourth quarter, the holiday selling period, that is a prime selling period for a company. But in addition to that, there are other points in the year that are also have higher levels of demand. So think Valentine's Day or Mother's Day, graduation time of the year, or wedding season, for example, all these will have shorter periods, but spikes in, in demand during various months, which we would consider non-key selling, non-fourth quarter selling. So when we're constructing an inventory appraisal, we're considering these different factors and how 
changes in demand throughout the year will influence recoverable value throughout the year. And generally speaking, what we're doing for specifically jewelry retailers, we're constructing not just a low and high recoverable value for the inventory, but we're isolating individual months and how changes in consumer demand based upon holiday buying, for example, will influence individual monthly recoveries, which in turn, the lender could then utilize when they construct their borrowing base advance rate calculation. When it comes to financing, one thing that we look at is, you know, how common is financing within, you know, specifically a jewelry retailer. So if you walk into a jewelry store, you might be met with signage that will offer interest-free financing for a period of time. And the interest-free financing might encourage you to buy a product or maybe spend more money than you otherwise would have. So what we do is we look at the financing programs in place, whether they're internally held or utilizing a third-party company. And then we look at how that is influencing overall consumer buying behavior and general concentration of financing in comparison to other means of purchase, including cash and credit card. So getting an understanding of these various factors are important in us determining overall disposition strategy within our appraisal report and and expected recoverable value. So if I have, if, if my business has a very high level of financing, for example, and we end up in a liquidation scenario, it's very possible that the flow of business, the volume of that business might be significantly impacted as a result of the fact that I can't necessarily secure that same financing during the liquidation. Is that, is that kind of where that, that's going? I think that's a good point. There's definitely the possibility that that could occur. We've done actual liquidations where we've had the opportunity to continue a financing program in place, but there's the inherent risk that that program might not be a viable option in a sale event. So understanding that risk is important as a lender uh, as part of their portfolio review. Okay. It makes good sense. The next two on your list are wholesale and costing. So if you think about wholesale, the wholesale market in general, one thing that we rely on is the fact that this inventory has a commodity component to it, the diamond, the the precious metal component. The good news here is that there are a lot of wholesale players available beyond who the, the company might be selling product to on a routine basis that we would be able to target in a sale event. And that's just not speaking domestically. You could extend that out internationally as well. So China, India, Israel, just to name a few of the players out there, these are all big players in the industry. And you have the potential to sell to these players via brokers or or even utilizing auction houses to sell all the way to end consumers. So the good news is the channels of distribution during an actual liquidation event could expand out, which benefits overall recoverable value. In addition to that, so I was mentioning earlier, the product itself, there's an inherent floor, an intrinsic value of the goods that might be diamonds or or the precious metal piece of the inventory. So when we're assessing the recoverable value, we're considering these different market conditions when we arrive at our gross recoverable value in an appraisal. In terms of the second one, you mentioned costing, I believe, and I I think I alluded to it earlier, but, you know, definitely worth repeating. The costing of these commodities will fluctuate, you know, based upon a variety of macro conditions. I mentioned that gold pricing had increased dramatically during the initial months of COVID. This in turn influences value. And that value 
will include the cost value, the procurement value that the company has when, when they're buying goods from vendors, but it will also impact their pricing strategy to customers, their the margin that you've achieved. And then that then relates into how we go about an inventory appraise and the appraised value of the goods. We look at you know current market conditions and what different commodity types are trading at currently and how that relates back to what the company has the inventory recorded on the books for. So we look at those deltas in part in determining our recoverable value for the goods. Yeah, you can really start to see how much work goes into this, how much how much diligence uh, you and the team perform. So this is this is great. All right, the next two on the list are assortment and licensed inventory. So assortment is something that we like to monitor a, a lot when, when we're looking at an, in, an inventory appraisal. And it includes whether the, the product might be a timepiece versus a bridle. It could look at, is it designer inventory versus private label inventory? You know, as is the case with a lot of industries, these factors influence not only historical sales and margin activity, but also the recovery value of, of the good itself. So what we're doing is we're looking at inventory in a very in-depth manner historically for a period of time for the coverage period of the appraisal to determine how mix and assortment are influencing expected recovery value. When it comes to licensed product, we'll come across licensed products from time to time. I would say the most common I've seen would be collegiate type goods or Disney product. My experience is licensed inventory is generally a smaller part of the puzzle, but it's definitely something to look at. You know, as with licensed inventory for any borrower, you know, outside of jewelry as well. You know, it's something that we would always recommend the lender's counsel review the contracts in place, these licensing agreements, to gain an understanding of you know, what type of restrictions might be at play here and would the product even be able to be liquidated. From there, our focus is really just assessing what's the concentration of licensed goods in comparison to the overall base of inventory on hand. And that will allow us to determine is this licensed inventory going to move the needle of the NMLV uh, one way or the other? Is there enough inventory there to really change value at all? Okay, and uh, the last item on the list is fraud. This is becoming a bigger problem now in the industry, isn't it? I would agree with you. Uh, I would say that one of the things that we look at is specifically lab-grown stones. The introduction has been more pronounced over the last couple of years now which is great. It adds an additional component asset category to various jewelry companies. But the challenge here is from a procurement standpoint, where lab-grown stones at a lower cost basis are sometimes mixed in with mined diamonds. So that creates fraud. And what we found is that the jewelry industry in general is being very proactive in managing against this inherent risk. And they've taken a number of steps and there's machinery equipment that's available to detect lab-grown stones, which we, which I'm finding that many jewelers are actively utilizing. And then there's also the fact that you have the ability to test products. So you could go in and actually examine the product, the, the loose diamond, for example, there would be a serialization on the loose diamond that you would be able to match up to a grading certificate on hand. So there, there are different checks that are available to help offset the risk of fraud. But the key to me is really for the lender to understand the borrower's processes, the procedures that they have in place to protect against this overall fraud. So what 
what equipment, what systems do that they have in place to really manage against fraud and other shrink risk in general. Yeah, and it's it's probably a a fairly significant investment, I would assume, for jewelers to bring that equipment in house, per, you know, purchase it or lease it long term. Is it is it costly? Uh, yes, but I would say definitely worthwhile and something that really all the jewelers that I've seen are currently investing in. Yeah, well, I think it, uh, especially if it, if it continues to grow as an issue, the, the consideration of fraud, it makes, uh, makes a lot of sense. So, all right, well, I think that that was an outstanding primer, uh, Stephen. So thank you. And uh, for all of our listeners, and particularly for those within the lending community, I think that'll be very helpful. Uh, so lenders, whether you're working with a prospective jewelry borrower or have current industry exposure within your portfolio, as this discussion has clearly illustrated, the more you understand about certain aspects of those businesses, the better right now. And to learn more, we would certainly encourage you to reach out to Stephen and the knowledgeable jewelry team at Hillco Valuation Services today. So with that in mind, Stephen's email is s dequila at hillcoglobal.com. That's S like Sapphire, D-A-Q-U-I-L-A at hillcoglobal.com. Stephen, it was really a pleasure having you on the podcast. You're so knowledgeable on the topic, and I think it was probably very helpful for all of our listeners. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate you uh, including me. Absolutely. And listeners, we hope that today's Hillco Global Smarter Perspective podcast provided you with at least one key takeaway that you can put to good use in your business or share with a colleague or client to help make them that much more successful moving forward. Until next time, for Hillco Global, I'm Steve Katz. (music) 